Read it again. Police are on the lookout for the couple. That's all it says. That police are on the lookout for the couple. Go back to your comics. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Koro Lane. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 62, back to Cole's choice, so what will we be discussing today? We are discussing Wanda from 1970, written and directed by Barbara Loden, who also starred in the film, along with Michael Higgins. The crew is small but notable, as it was only four people working on a minuscule budget. And one of those key people was Nicholas Preferis, who shot the film and also edited it. And he mentioned that it was really up to Barbara Loden to handle the performances, the direction of the actors, working on the scenes, and that he really contributed to the look and feel of the film. And yet, having said that, I don't want to diminish from Barbara Loden's accomplishment. This is entirely her vision as far as I'm concerned, and that is very important when it comes to this movie. I think it's also incredibly important to point out that this was the first film that was written by, directed by, and starred a woman. That figures heavily into why I chose it, but there's so much more to it than that as well. We'll get to all of that when we get to our wrap-up. But yes, it is definitely a landmark in independent American cinema, for that and many other reasons. The story is about Wanda Goronsky, who is a woman that lives in a Pennsylvania coal town, a hard scrabble existence full of screaming babies and slamming screen doors, bad hair, no communication. She's in the midst of family turmoil and divorce, and in the middle of all this, she wanders into a bar that is unbeknownst to her being robbed. She takes up with that robber, hitting the road going first from essentially kidnap victim to lover to accomplice. And the seed of the film is actually a true story. A woman named Alma Malone in 1960 went through a similar experience, and what got Barbara Loden's attention the most in the account of this crime is that Alma Malone thanked the judge at her sentencing, as if incarceration was a relief. I want to add as well that in addition to that explanation that Barbara Loden had mentioned as to why this material caught her eye, why she felt compelled to create this, I think also that Nicholas Perforis had something really interesting to say as well after Barbara Loden had died. And she died super young at age 48 from cancer. In 1980, and so we didn't have the benefit of seeing what else she could have done. Tragic on two counts, I think, not just for her dying so young, but this film also being seemingly willed into the void by everyone that was involved with it, by the critical establishment at large. There is so much potential in this film. It's valuable not just as the thing it is on its own, but I can see so much opening up in front of me when I watch it that she could have soon done. It's really sad. And also reading about the things that she had been working on in that 10-year span as well before she died, Mm -hmm. what she was interested in, things she was trying to write, things she was trying to get made, all sounded fascinating as well. And Nicholas Perforis specifically said, which I think is a very plausible reason for creating this film, She was driven to overcome her past. Again, there's so much in there to get into. We'll parcel it out over the course of the show, but yeah, that is exactly right. And surprising at points to me how much 
she saw of herself in this because she seems both of this and completely separate from it simultaneously to me. I think as we get into this, I maybe am going to disagree with you a little bit on that second point. I really felt that she was completely in it. I didn't, I think, have those same moments where I felt I was also seeing Barbara Loden. Mm -hmm. So where do we want to start in this glitzy, beautiful, glittering <laughs> world of coal mining Pennsylvania? We start deep in the anthracite, basically. It opens with this tableau of coal mining and rundown houses with too many people living in such a small space at one time. Like I mentioned, screaming babies, not enough food to go around, probably. And we're introduced to Wanda, who is sleeping on her sister's couch, because we assume, later, of her marital strife. Her sister's husband is clearly not happy that she's there, which she picks up on. The first words out of her mouth are, he's mad because I'm here. I think she's essentially a person who is unwanted and does not want to be there. Which is the first immediately interesting thing to me about this, because how many films can you think of in the genre of female drifters that are not either prostitutes or someone's accessory in some way? The first thing I thought of when we really get to see this landscape is how much, number one, I could relate to it because of, of where I'm from, and number two, how much it's like Wanda. I'm reminded of that line in the Pear Lawrence film, The River, we took the top off the mountain. What happens when you strip away everything that was ever beautiful about anything that you're looking at or that you love and what you are left with? And then to say that she's a drifter, for me, this is the clearest encapsulation of what my concept of drifting is. There is nothing but time ahead of you. It's not as if this film is elapsing in real time. It's just simply that time is endless. And filling that time is a difficult proposition in some cases, as evidenced by almost everyone you see waking up. Waking up is a misery because of what you are waking up into. Being alive, being awake, being conscious is a struggle, almost a punishment. And I don't know if you've ever lived anywhere or been around people where basically the first thing you hear in the morning is the cigarette cough. <laughs> and that sound is in tandem with the coffee percolating. And not long after, mining equipment starting to churn. And always that one lone dog barking off in the distance that will not stop. So, as she's often done hundreds, maybe thousands of times before, she gets up and just gets on her way. And it's a really beautiful, I think, almost two-minute-long opening shot where she is just wandering through the mountains of coal deposits that are piled everywhere in the landscape. Because, at least for me, I wasn't sure what I was seeing until she was more fully in frame, which took a very long time. I thought, a speck, an animal, a vehicle. No, it's a person. It struck me the same way that Gloria Stewart mentions in The Old Dark House that James Whale wanted her to appear as a candle flame against the background. When Wanda is out wandering amidst all of this dark industrial landscape in her light-colored outfit, it doesn't have the same glamorous effect that Gloria Stewart has in The Old Dark House, but it definitely catches your eye. It gives you something to fix upon. Now, is it okay for me to say right here, or is it too soon, to say that watching this, I felt that she had the most complete vision of anything that I could remember seeing in a very long time. Say whatever you want. Well, I don't think anyone else could have 
made this, truly. And I know that seems odd to say of a person who has made one thing, and whom we don't know a ton about, but it really feels true, and especially when I compare it to something like Tragic Ceremony, which we covered in our Jack-O-Lantern episode, our Halloween wrap-up episode. Now with that, you have something, at least to my mind, that had many, many, many more resources behind it. More professional actors, Barbara Loden and Michael Higgins were the only two professional actors on this film. You had a very experienced director with that one as well, Barbara Loden, this was her first thing. And Tragic Ceremony feels like it was made by an amateur, and this, Wanda, was made by an amateur and feels incredibly self-assured. In a way, those differences make sense, because this is obviously a passion project, and I don't think Ricardo Freda was waiting his whole life to tell the story of Tragic Ceremony, nor do I think he saw that much of himself in it. Good point. But you're right about resources. For instance, this was shot on extremely grainy 16mm, which I think works distinctly to its advantage because of the documentary nature of that format. For instance, in these opening shots. In a glossier production, I might not be so immediately aware that the things I look forward to are not the same things that these people look forward to, these characters in Wanda. That we do not fill our time the same way or have the same expectations out of what our lives are going to be. A word about that here as well. So we're talking about a time period when that romanticized crime spree was very, very popular, specifically something like Bonnie and Clyde. Mm -hmm. And Barbara Loden talked about specifically going for that grittier documentary approach. And she said, I really hate slick pictures. They're too perfect to be believable. I don't mean just in the look. I mean in the rhythm, in the cutting, the music, everything. The slicker the technique, the slicker the content becomes until everything turns into formica, including the people. You are absolutely correct that she does not romanticize this at all. There is none of that poverty tourism that you see not making them into magical beings. They're not Robin Hoods. She's really not a great person, Wanda. No, and there's no real emotion happening quite a bit of the time either that could even suggest anything like romance or rising above one situation, whatever we take that to be. That thing you mentioned, though, about the lack of emotion, I wonder about. Because I see so much of what is happening as repressed emotion, rather than it just being a void. I think Wanda feels things, but has a very innate understanding that whether or not she does, it does not matter much. And so she has, for 40 years, pushed it down into herself as far as she possibly can. It's there, it just doesn't surface very often. There's definitely a delay to everything. Or even, I wonder, a sense of, I know that this is what I should be feeling or doing, but it takes me a minute to remember that. I think so much of that, the way it manifests itself in her, is because of her condition of being so adrift for so long. It has its roots in rootlessness, because you notice, for example, she's never shown having a home of her own. So never having a place to find your equilibrium, to get on your feet, to feel steadied. I'm sure after enduring that for so long, you come to not trust anything very much, including your own emotions. I think you're right. She ultimately has nowhere to go. And so that's what drives, if that's even the right verb, drives this. She's completely non-directional. I have to admit, I looked up a lot of things that Barbara Loden said, so I'm going to throw in 
a number of those and tell me if it's too much at any point. I don't think so, because I think one of the prime objectives of this episode needs to be to teach people about Barbara Loden, because I think she's fascinating, and I think not enough of her work or anything about her is celebrated. And some of that is down to her. Some of that's her own fault. So I'm going to pick up the torch for her, and we're going to carry on and spread the word. I think we also have Isabel Hubert to thank for that as well, because she really championed this film and has for a very long time and is directly responsible for it getting another release. And Barbara Loden said here that her subject matter is of people who are not too verbal and not aware of their condition. They don't have time for wittily observing the things around them. They're not concerned about anything more than existing from day to day. They're not stupid they're ignorant. Everything they see is ugly. That seems like a pretty harsh critique, a pretty privileged position that she's in to be saying stuff like that. You being from that region, how much of that rings true to you? What of that have you seen? 100%? Is that is that too okay. much? <laughs> and first, let me say, when we see Wanda, I don't want her on my couch. You mentioned that she's not particularly a great person, and she's not. And so these people that I'm thinking of from my own life I don't mean to suggest that they were as ignorant or ugly as that kind of character in those surroundings, but I do think about that idea of the prettiest woman in a very, very, very small area. That is not a glamorous existence. And I should also reinforce the idea that this is not tourism. These were her people, too. She came from a region just like this. How about we get into a little bit of that background here? Is that okay? okay? Sure. So a bit about... Barbara Loden's background. She was born in a very, very, very small town, Marion, North Carolina, in 1932. Her parents had divorced, and she was raised by her strict grandparents, which she specifically talked about how emotionally repressed and cold and unfeeling they were. And she moved to New York City on her own at age 16. And that first early period of her kind of quote-unquote professional life was very much in that what I think of as the kind of cheesecake role, mm -hmm. model, pinup girl, dancer. She got her big break on the Ernie Kovac show, and she could have just sort of stayed in that realm forever, really. That's what, at that time, well and still, we want to tell pretty women to do. But instead, she went to study at the actor's studio. And then her future would really be shaped in part by her association, and subsequent marriage to Ilya Kazan. I think it was clear super early on that there was always more to her than that. She was destined for something bigger than her upbringing, than her surroundings, even maybe than her association with Kazan. When you look at her body of work, she won a Tony six years before she made this. For After the Fall. She is no slouch. I think based on what I've read about her, the relative dearth of material that she produced has a lot to do with how she perceived herself. I think there was a significant insecurity there, which is a shame. And she specifically references that herself. I'm not just making that up. One significant thing that I found that she said about herself in describing herself, I didn't know who I was. I was all over the place. I had no pride. And while that exhibits a significant self-awareness, it also hamstrings you as an artist unbelievably. And clearly connects to why she felt so akin to this character and felt so driven to make this film. And going back to that idea I floated about the prettiest woman in a tiny town, she also talked a lot about just not having the tools to do really anything. 
And she specifically mentioned what would have happened to her in the natural course of events if she had stayed in Marion. And that's what we see of Wanda. She would have gotten married very young, worked at the Woolworths, had a couple of kids, and gotten drunk on Friday and Saturday nights. And ended up in divorce court the same way we see here? Because that's where she ends up going after this long walk in the opening scene. And these interactions with men already, her brother-in-law, which isn't much of an interaction but definitely sets a tone, and her soon-to-be ex-husband that she shows up late for their divorce court proceedings, it's a lot of deference to start with. Her response to the judge, I wanted to ask you what you thought about this, was basically, give him whatever he wants. It struck me two ways. Because she won't defend herself or even explain that she wants out. She is completely non-committal. Right. She doesn't say either that she wants to stay married and keep her kids or that she doesn't want to stay married and keep her kids. The kids are a non-factor in this. She does not even look in their direction. But that scene did two things in particular for me. One, that was the second that I first fell in love with this character because you can see there's a bit of an outlaw in there. Some of it has to do with the things that she has gone through in her life up to now, but some of it is definitely rooted in the fact that she doesn't care about these rules. She has long since thrown off behaving according to the things that are expected of her. And the other thing that it made me think about is, does she have, and I doubt this part a little bit, her own ambitions? You talked about this a little bit already. If these things are unsatisfactory, does she want other things? It doesn't seem like it. I can't even imagine what those things would be, and I don't see them glimmer in her eyes at any point. And there also seems to be a grim realism in terms of, what could I actually aspire to? I didn't learn anything. She also mentioned this about her own background. She didn't learn anything in school. She couldn't do anything. She didn't know how to do anything, which is what Wanda says as well, and I believe it. And I think that dichotomy is really interesting that you mentioned, that deference to the point of almost numbness, but also a little bit of that rebelliousness, because just because you have children, that doesn't make you a mother. That doesn't inherently inspire any sort of feeling. I do wish that maybe that had been thought of beforehand, but of course I wasn't there. Strictly for the children's sake, though, not for her sake, right? Exactly. I felt the most keenly for the woman who's sitting in the gallery taking care of her two children and who her soon-to-be ex-husband says, she's been helping me take care of the kids and also that we're probably going to get married. Wow, what a glamorous existence <laughs> that is. Sweep me off my feet. And here, it doesn't even feel like she's, you know, wriggling out of a noose. It's sort of like there was a little bit of slack in the line and she disappeared long ago. Another thing I kept thinking about a lot while I was watching this was our episode about Jean Dielman and how much we love that and how these two women are similar in some ways and complete opposites in others. And even more specifically than that, the role that men play in these two movies, how in Jean Dielman they are essentially pushed to the periphery because she has sequestered herself in that apartment and has left almost no room for anything else. But how Wanda encounters so much more of it because she is loose in the world adrift like we mentioned. And so the impact that men have directly on her life is exceptionally more significant than John Dealman's day-to-day. They are making all the decisions. Or are they? Because in this next scene, when she is recovering from this scene at divorce court, she goes to the bar to get herself a rolling rock. The sleazy salesman there offers to buy her this drink and they end up almost instantly in bed together. That whole prettiest girl in town thing you're talking about 
she's at least learned to use that to some sort of advantage. Although, what has she gotten out of this? I don't even feel like she's using anything. It's such a transactional instance. And even that, I feel like I'm making more of it than actually occurs. It's simply, he says, I'm buying you this drink. She knows what that means. He knows what that means. And the next morning, they're in this motel room. And no emotion happened. No joy happened. And so then what is she even using here? She's not even really getting further down the road. It feels more like, this is what I am supposed to do in this situation, therefore I will do it. The one thing that struck me about that scene, the part at least where she's in the bar that I wanted to ask you about, when she puts her head down and covers her eyes, who do you think that gesture is for? Is she expressing something? Is it her weariness? Or is it akin to this thing that you're saying, I know that this is how this is supposed to go, so is this a show that she's putting on for other people to see, for this salesman to see, so that she appears available, vulnerable, a damsel in distress for him to step in? I think even that reading of it gives everyone more credit Hmm. for more thought. I do believe her weariness, and even the weariness could just be, you know, I just want to sit down here and drink this for a minute, or maybe I just want an ice cream cone right now, as opposed to a more kind of existential dilemma. So none of these characters have the capacity to think that far ahead of themselves? I was thinking earlier that it's this idea of she clearly has no agency. And I think that concept doesn't even enter her mind. That that would even exist. Or how to go about doing it. Or even to work hard enough to get it for yourself. I do feel the need to say something right here. I absolutely love this film. I'm talking about a character that I don't particularly like or want around. And I thought this was unbelievably fantastic. It was astounding to me to watch this. So does it even need to be said that you can absolutely love something with a character that is inherently not particularly interesting? I think you can definitely do that, and specifically with this, because of Barbara Loden and who she is. So many times in the film, I felt like Barbara Loden was bursting through the character of Wanda. Because these people we're talking about, these characters that are being portrayed, if we were to encounter them in real life, and I think this is some of the stuff that we were talking about where we feel a little bit differently about this, there's that deadness behind the eyes that comes from decades of living this way. Whereas when I look at Barbara Loden, there is something always going on back there that she cannot hide. No matter how dull a character she's trying to play, she can't push Barbara Loden down all the way to become Wanda. The same way, for instance, Delphine Seyrig pushed everything in herself down to become Jean Dielman. In this movie, it provides a great tension for me when I'm regarding Wanda and Barbara Loden simultaneously because flashes of Barbara Loden come through. I see ingenuity and joy, and desire, and those things don't necessarily seem to be part and parcel of Wanda, so I'm constantly left struggling throughout this experience watching this film, trying to figure out how much of it is intended to be which woman, and how much of it just simply cannot be contained. When you have that sort of undeniable personality, it can never be completely subsumed. And I definitely don't want to suggest that she plays this one note, because she does not. But I'm just going to have to watch it again and look for those moments because I really felt that she immersed herself in this. Well, you feel a certain kinship with it, but I think what I'm seeing also springs from that feeling of kinship. And also, like I said, 
legitimately falling in love with this woman, and specifically because of something I later read that makes me completely relate to her. Elia Kazan, in interviews about her, was routinely dismissive of her, I thought, and it's infuriating. But the one thing he said about her that locked it in for me for all time was that she died angry. That, I believe, and coming from him mostly because it serves no purpose to advance his agenda in any way, I think it's true because it doesn't make him look any better, which so much of his conversation about her was geared to do. Because he would often say that he wrote the original script for this film, and then she rewrote it many times to make it her own. He also said that he was first approached to direct it himself, but thought that the material was too sentimental, and I'm using that voice on purpose. So that fury is what I see, and what I am connecting to, I think, a little bit. That is coming through whether she likes it or not. And I think the thing you say about having to watch it again is definitely a good idea because there is so much in this that is not just on the surface, very little on the surface, in fact, that it requires multiple viewings. I may watch this over and over again for the rest of my life. And for me, I just have to remind myself that I don't have to give our listening audience more credit because they don't have to be told to give something a chance or to stick with something that might seem slow to other people. So I guess the question we were asking is, what do you get from all of this if you're her? What you get is ditched at the Dairy Queen. Or the Tasty Freeze, where I'm from. <laughs> okay. And then, like, so many of the motivations behind what she does, she simply just has to get to the next place in order to maybe get a little bit more money to then get to the next place. In this case, the next place is a super cool Latino movie theater in some small town in the middle of Pennsylvania. I guess it has to do with, even then, migrant workers and how they would move from region to region depending on what was needed. But I was really surprised to see that. It's a really neat little diversion in an ingenious place to have this next little bit of business. And I guess just more marginalized people. More things to see in our America than other filmmakers would take us to. So she ends up taking a nap during this movie and wakes up, everyone else is gone, and what little money she has has been stolen from her purse. I do have to say, though, part of me continues to wonder if that was still a ploy, if she didn't actually have any money to begin with, and making up this story is a way to get some people to loan her something. At this point, that's probably Ouroboros, the snake eating its tail. It's never-ending, this cycle. The interesting thing that comes of it, though, is that she pushes her way into this bar, seeking a sort of refuge, at least a minute to clean herself up, to get reset, to possibly find someone who might loan her some money. And notably, when she barges her way in here, this is the first time in the film where we see her exert her will. I love that moment where Michael Higgins, he is the man in this bar, whom she takes to be the bartender, when he grabs her, and she does that movement where she's able to get away to continue moving forward. I think that's really interesting physicality on her part. And I think also, based on our backgrounds, we know the kind of person who shows up five minutes before <laughs> our business is closing. Always the same kind of person. Well, what she doesn't know is that she has stumbled into a robbery, and he is not actually the bartender. He is a criminal. The bartender is tied up on the floor behind the bar, and this nervousness and agitation that he's exhibiting has everything to do with that and trying to exact a getaway rather than just closing up for the night. But, strangely, he takes her with him. 
how quickly this moves is astounding to me at this point. How it goes from complete strangers to before even the end of that scene, he's referring to them as an us, let's go. And then in the next scene, when they're in the diner, having the spaghetti dinner, how much they're already acting like a couple who has long been established. They have already descended into pettiness and bickering like you would see from people who had been together for 20 years. And I didn't realize this, that evidently most of their scenes together, if not all, were heavily improvised. Mm -hmm. And Michael Higgins specifically mentioned that this was the most freedom he ever felt on a movie set. Do you feel like he's the male equivalent of her, at least in regards to this notion of being adrift? Because just as often as I wonder about her, why does she stay in a given place, I wonder just as much, why does he keep her with him? Is it that the two of them are equally at a point of, what else is there to do? Or that they're both such non-forces that they end up creating their own force somehow? There is that thing that we see that is common in these criminals on the run type movies where... The combination of the two personalities results in a thing that would never have taken place if those people were by themselves. Starkweather's story, for instance, or In Cold Blood, for example. I did feel like it was the first time I'd ever really seen anything that made me understand those sorts of stories that you read. For example, what inspired Barbara Loden. And then those instances of, oh, I just got in the car with him, I don't know why. Or I just did this thing, I don't know why. The unexamined life, and then you end up on a crime spree three states away. So it's as lackluster as her existence of, I'm going to get married and have these kids, as I'm just going to get in the car with this bank robber and continue to call him Mr. Dennis. Also a detail lifted specifically from Alma Malone's story. And then in Mr. Dennis's case, in Norman Dennis's case, I do see, especially in that scene that comes a bit later on where he's talking to his father and basically making up these scenarios about, I'm going to get this great job the next time you see me. He does seem to be driven to at least something in a way that I don't see of her. I think if we had asked that character, he would say, well, there's nothing I can do about it. She just got in the car, which is true and not true, really. I don't know if in that moment he's thinking ahead to this meeting with his father and this is almost like, oh, see, I, I'm doing well. I've got this mm. wife now. Mm -hmm. I do think ultimately it starts to wear on him. That's when we see those abusive tendencies of his come out. And I think not that she deserved it, but that's what she inspired in him. But it was also already there. Yes, I see that exact thing in her reaction to when he hits her the first time. There's not surprise on her face. There's almost no reaction. There's no outrage. At most, there's a, well, why did you do that? And that delay that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. It is the life she is used to. You can tell that for sure. I keep coming back to Jean Dielman again and again because, similar to that, sex as currency in this keeps coming up. She's had it twice in this first day and a half. What do you imagine this encounter is like between her and Mr. Dennis? Honestly, I don't want to imagine what it's like, <laughs> really. The same on his side as well, because when she leaves the room and he's still in his underwear, I don't have a sense of he feels like the conquering hero. To me, it seems like A, a way to pass the time, and B, I put this here and this goes here and then we're done. As ways to pass the time go, I guess it could be a lot worse. That's true. It also doesn't seem like 
looking back on it, you would think that was a great way to pass the time. It does not seem like there is much fun. There's just no fun. You're doing it wrong. Yes, for sure. You don't look at me when you say that. (laughs) The people in the movie are doing it wrong. So commensurate with the speed that everything else happens, apparently Stockholm Syndrome sets in because if she was unaware of what was happening before, she is definitely not unaware of it the next morning when they are trying to steal a car from churchgoers. There are several points at which she could have just said no. She could have walked away, she could have left, and she never does. I also wonder how much criminality is foreign to her. In what way? What do you mean? Because I don't think in her surroundings that she was completely unfamiliar with petty crime. That's what I'm thinking. In younger years, it might have been friends going out for a joyride, as it was called. And so I don't think it's shocking to her. And I also don't think that element of it happening around a church particularly makes that much of a difference to her as well. But I do think it certainly goes beyond a point at which she had reckoned on happening. And that's encapsulated by this use of this question that she has. It feels like the question that sums up her life, which is, huh. How do you feel like she deploys that? What purpose does that question serve? Is it multiple purposes? It follows things like, what are you trying to get me into? Where are we going? Normal questions that for you and I would be followed up by, because this is wrong, or because I didn't intend for anything like this to happen, because what is your intention here? Because what is your motivation? Any of those things, any of those words, all she has is, huh. So dull and numb and muted, much like everything else. And ultimately unable to craft a question that would get an answer. Uh, I did not think specifically of that, but yes, now that you say that, how inarticulateness is crucial to the story. Because it is unsophisticated, for sure. Both the story it is telling and, I think to its advantage, in the way it's told, the way it's assembled, the way it's shot, it's crude. We mentioned the grainy 16mm aspect of it, and I think she struggled mightily with the responsibility of it. She mentions specifically how it's easy to tell an avant-garde story because linear narrative and coherent imagery aren't necessarily expected of that. But to tell a simple story well is extremely difficult sometimes. This is another instance where I was pleasantly surprised by what I found when I got there. I think I expected much more Cassavetes because of the spot she occupies in American independent film. And ultimately, I'm glad it wasn't that, because as much as I love Cassavetes, he's my absolute favorite, it would not have worked to shoot this that way. He is so much more dramatic and theatrical than this would have needed. This struck me as more akin to someone like Charles Burnett when you're watching Killer of Sheep, when you're watching something closely observed by someone from that community who understands what motivates these characters, what day-to-day life is like for these characters, and that the story itself is important and doesn't need to be made any more dramatic, any fancier than it is. The importance of it is in the relaying of the information. The fact that the story even exists to be retold is what's important, not how much we can amp up the drama. And it's simple, but it is not flat at any moment. I think the composition is stellar, and there are a few scenes that really set that idea off for me. One being when they have that car and they're kind of out in the field and there is another group of people who are flying a remote control airplane. 
And watching Wanda and Mr. Dennis move around the car is really spectacular. I'm not articulating it. You have to see it to understand what I'm talking about. And another similar scene when they're in one of the motel rooms and they cross each other as well. Oh, and another one as well when the camera is watching them move in and out of these parked cars as he's looking for one to steal. I love all three of these that you mentioned for very specific reasons. That one shot from inside the car, I think underscores how necessary the documentary feel of the 16mm is, because you can't necessarily shoot that the same way and get the same feeling with a Panaflex, with a 35mm. There's an urgency and immediacy to that 16mm that you could not have achieved another way. Specifically, the other one that I like the most is that scene that you mentioned where they are out in the field and they encounter the guys with the model airplanes. Their choreography just prior to them encountering those guys with the planes. There's so much interesting stuff happening that you see a conflict between their movements, how they are regarding one another, and the things that he is actually saying to her. Their movements around one another connote a tenderness when he puts the coat on her shoulders, he's looking at her hair, that is then completely upended by how critical he is of her. Abusive. But all of it tells us so much about each one of them. How they view the world at large, how they feel about each other, how they feel about themselves. And amazingly, like you mentioned, so much of that is the product of really ingenious improvisation. The quality and depth of which you probably don't often see outside of Robert Bresson movies. And the third scene you mentioned, so particularly telling when they're in this hotel room in preparation for this bank heist. She's got to be directly talking to Kazan in this scene because he is directing her through rehearsal, Mr. Dennis. And it's no great coincidence that Michael Higgins is actually wearing a borrowed suit of Kazan's as part of his wardrobe. She definitely has things to say and there is so much subtext going on right there. And by the time we get to this point where they are going through this rehearsal, she's all in. She half-heartedly tries to back out, but you know she's not going to. I agree and I disagree. I definitely agree that she's not going anywhere, but this is when she does have the biggest reaction that we have ever seen up till now. As she is starting to pad herself to look like a pregnant woman, she is involuntarily throwing up and basically trying to protest but not succeeding in actually putting her foot down and saying, I will not continue with this. Her attachment to him. Does it form in spite of or because of the mistreatment? I've wondered that a lot myself, and I guess ultimately I've come down in favor of because of. I think that's the unavoidable conclusion, too. And maybe even less about because of the abuse, but because of the control and decision-making. In the sense that, again, it's what she's used to, or that she just prefers to relinquish that control? It's a direction that she doesn't have, so she might as well go along with it. I love that moment, and I oddly connect it to what we're talking about here, when she has taken over driving the car, and everyone's starting to honk around her, so clearly something is wrong, and she kind of sticks her tongue out and rolls her eyes a little bit at herself. Well, that leads us to an even bigger question, I think, in terms of responsibility. Because we are hurtling toward the end here, and we know nothing good is going to come of any of this. I really didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't think it was going to be good or positive. I didn't assume that they were going to get away with it, but I truly didn't know what was going to happen. I felt like that there was no way that this was going to succeed and it was going to turn out terribly, but that was all based solely on him. 
He's a terrible criminal. My feelings about it had nothing to do with the parts of the thing that she was responsible for. But I think when it all goes down and he is killed by the police, I think the feeling that's inescapable to her is that she is responsible for what happened. That she wasn't on time. That she botched things to the point that it ended up with him being dead. When actually it turns out it was his poor planning that caused that. I almost forgot about one other really interesting moment when they have taken a family hostage because the head of the family works at the bank. And that's part of this dumb plan that he comes up with. The man actually takes control of the gun and is fighting with Mr. Dennis. And she tries to defend him. She tries to get the man off of Mr. Dennis. So there is clearly a level of complicity and you cannot say being a human being that you don't have responsibility for your actions, even if you feel that the world is happening around you and you don't have agency or you don't have the equipment, as Barbara Loden said, to get out of these circumstances, you still have responsibility. At that point, though, was that character's response as much self-preservation as her complicity with furthering this plan? I think it still felt more of a knee-jerk reaction than anything else. This is the person that I'm with. This is my world. Therefore, I will try to defend him. I do really appreciate that as we see Wanda, because of her terrible driving again that has gotten her pulled over and prevented her from getting to the bank on time, she asks the police the way to the bank. <laughs> without any sort of irony. And she gets there, but too late. And I love that shot of her face as the police are beginning to cordon off the area. Realization setting in, but in true Wanda fashion, she's not fighting all that hard to assert herself. Maybe wisely again at this point, self-preservation, I'm going to recede into the woodwork. She does seem smart enough not to say, hey, I'm with that guy. <laughs> in this case, yes. But that look on her face as she is realizing what has happened, and she starts to open her mouth to say something and then doesn't. It's a pretty great moment. So all we essentially have left now is a coda where she encounters a soldier to get a ride picked up by another guy who begins to try to assault her and for the first time she resists. Well, even before that, when they're still in the bar and he's buying her these drinks, which before this point had been those transactions that she was used to, it felt like she didn't want to actually play her part. She won't even speak at this point. What is it that motivates this Fighting back, though, the first time, is it that she has lost something so significant? Because how invested could she have been in Mr. Dennis? I don't know. Maybe quite a lot. But also, it's possibly the first person who has died a violent death. Again, as you mentioned, because she thinks as a direct result of something she didn't do, that he told her to do. And maybe she just doesn't feel like playing this part to its completion, at least at this moment. I think you nail it with the at least at this moment part, because everything here is fleeting. Everything here is temporary. Everything will revert back to the way it was, I feel like. Which is underlined by this final chilling freeze frame. She finds her way to another bar with another group of revelers, and as the camera closes in on her and freezes, it is the most adrift and alone she has ever been, even though she is in a sea of merriment. So essentially, same as it ever was the end. And this is one of the saddest things I've ever seen. Not quite same as it ever was, specifically because of the fact that it is the lowest she's ever been. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure about that. Okay. 
because she has had two children, and I think at some point when she was still in that house with that husband and those kids, or the day she found out she was pregnant, Mm. either time, I can see those as being very, very low moments. But this is a nakedly low moment. Other points of where her soul might have died a small death, but in this case, a literal death. Now, one of the reasons I think this is not as highly regarded in feminist film circles is because of her perceived passivity throughout. I disagree with that assessment of it. I think it's extremely important in terms of films by, for, and about women. What credence do you give that criticism? I understand it, and at the same time, a woman or a man can be any kind of character, and she is showing us people, settings, that no one else wants to show us or explore, and she is exploring what a woman can be. I come back to Jean Dielman again, and the whole thing of how their worth being calculated in terms of their domesticity, and how they each found their way to demonstrate how untenable a situation that is for them, how completely unthinkable it is to live the rest of my life this way, one by sequestering herself, and one by just cutting completely loose from everything. Specifically with Wanda, the question being, where do you go after you reject the only life that society allows you to have? In retrospect, I guess that applies to Jean Dielman as well, now that I say that out loud. But with Wanda, we see her acting on that idea out in the world at large. I guess that type of criticism is for people who want women to be saints or martyrs or rise above everything and not truly explore what a large portion of the world is going through, both men and women. If you want every woman to be powerful and every man to be witty and every child to be precocious, this is not the world for you. That's like Wobegon. (laughs) Well, now, speaking of, I can always count on you for a big chuckle fest. So, are there any other reasons why you chose this film that we have not gone over? I don't think there are reasons that we haven't gone over, but there are certainly reasons that bear repeating. It's fascinating to me how much is revealed upon repeat viewings. Again, I'm completely taken by surprise at points when I think about Barbara Loden saying that everything in this film comes from her experience. And that alone is why I think this is so important and why we should watch it over and over again. Because if you dig around, you'll come to see that so many other people are telling her story, a number of them whom I don't trust to be exactly honest about it. I feel like this document is her most direct communication with an audience to say, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, this is what is important to know about me. Aside from that, she is a pioneer and should be celebrated as one of the greatest American independent filmmakers ever, even on the strength of only one film. Because we're not talking about a pioneer who made something cute or a good effort. She made something complete and valuable. And she did it with no examples to follow, with no female collaborators to work with, essentially. She is out there completely on her own as a woman making films in this style. And sadly, there is almost no other record of her process, of her struggles, of the story that she wanted to tell. So watch Wanda multiple times. It's an extremely important piece of early American independent cinema. And significantly, I think, completely different and separate from that new Hollywood that was occurring around the same time. As much as we like to think of Scorsese and Coppola and that whole bunch of film school kids as mavericks, she is a maverick. They were making big-budget, fancy movies. 
she was making something that she had to make and that no one else could have made. And since we did a big quote fest, I wanted to ask you about one last thing she said before we get into recommendations or anything else to get your reaction to this. She said, actresses do what all women are expected to do. We just throw ourselves into it more. Interesting to me in that it could be read two ways. I think I read it one specific way. One reading of that could be that actresses do what all women do and then some. We just throw ourselves into it more. Or the reading that I think is more accurate is that actresses, like all women, are expected to do more. The we of the we just throw ourselves into it more being all women, not just actresses. Do you see it one way or the other? I guess I go with the latter, and I think the unspoken ellipsis is than men. Mm -hmm. We're expected to do more than men, and we throw ourselves into it more. I don't know that I necessarily agree or disagree with that, but I feel like that's what she was implying. And now knowing the limited extent of what I do know about her, I really wonder exactly when she said that. It feels very much motivated by something. That's a good point. I think so much of what she does is in reaction to something else, because she was often described by the people that knew her as being sometimes volatile, at her best, at her strongest, when she was having a strong reaction to something. And since the historical record is so relatively scarce when it comes to her background and her career, I do wonder, like you, what specifically that is in reference to. Either way, whether it's just a general observation or a reaction to a particular thing, she's a fascinating woman, and I think everyone should dig into Barbara Loden as much as they can. So how about a couple of recommendations that people can also dig into? Well, for mine, I'm going to keep it in cold country and with a woman at the helm, and I'm going to recommend Harlan County, USA from 1976, directed by Barbara Koppel. It's a documentary recounting the Brookside Strike, which was a labor dispute between coal miners and the Duke Power Company in Kentucky, and it chronicles the day-to-day struggles of these folks and the escalating danger that they find themselves in as the pressure mounts on both sides of the negotiating table, with the presence of the cameras sometimes being the only thing that is keeping the violence at bay. While Wanda is an incisive artistic exploration of the existential crises that these people face, this is the real deal. And eventually, even the documentation wasn't enough as it culminated in a fatal episode that galvanizes the community. What struck me when I watched it was that it could have been 1876, Mm. 1926, 1946. That world, for a number of reasons, exists kind of out of time. And that ever-present sense of what the one woman refers to as gun thugs is so terrifying and tense. It's a true achievement. And what about you? Now, this was directly inspired by you. Okay. I was thinking about what you were talking about, seeing those glimpses of Barbara Loden inside Wanda. Mm -hmm. And so that made me think of Housekeeping from 1987. Also another connection to you, written and directed by your friend and mine, Bill Forsythe. Love Bill Forsythe. Check out our episode on Gregory's Girl, if you are so inclined. This stars Christine Lottie, Sarah Walker, and Andrea Birchall. It's about two teen sisters who end up living with their very eccentric aunt after their mother's suicide and grandmother's death. Now, I mentioned that feeling that you have about seeing Barbara Loden, and I think that Christine Lottie is absolutely perfect in this role, and she shares that same sort of complete inner life, in this instance, that comes through in small smiles that she has. Unlike Wanda, though, I feel like everything that Aunt Sylvie does is a determined choice. 
And it's the final choice that one of the sisters makes at the very end, which I don't want to reveal because probably not many people have seen this Mm. film. I do want them to experience it for themselves. It's that final choice that also makes this film come to mind for a recommendation. An excellent choice because I think Bill Forsyth is almost as criminally underseen as Barbara Loden's work. And so that's two great recommendations, Harlan County, USA, and Housekeeping. And that brings us to the end of episode 62. Right off the bat, before we do anything else, I want to say an extra special thanks to Andy Wolverton for becoming our latest Patreon supporter. Thanks, Andy. We really appreciate it. If you would like to check out our Patreon and get access to all the cool bonus stuff we have available, just go to patreon.com slash magiclantern. Everything is appreciated. You can donate at ranges starting as low as a dollar a month. Starting at $5 a month, that gets you access to bonus content that we create every other Monday, so you never have to go a week without Magic Lantern in your life. We just wrapped up some really fun October episodes on suspenseful and spooky topics. And also, speaking of Cassavetes, we've got a Cassavetes link coming up in one of the episodes we're about to record soon as well. If you would like to just get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can just search Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback in the short turnaround time since our jack-o'-lantern episode. The gentleman at Fuds on Film, Matteo Boscarol, Grindhouse Dave, and Brian Sauer. Thanks for sharing the show, guys. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, just about any podcatcher you use, you can find us. If you would like to leave us a rating and review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>